Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I'm trying a little ex- bit of an experiment today uh, because, well, I got nothing but time on my hands, and I either do this or I start um, dressing up my dogs and cats like various Star Trek characters and pretending we're on an away mission. Um, some of you may recall I tried to do an what we were calling an audio G file a few like last summer. And it really didn't work. It didn't work for a bunch of different reasons. Um, uh, one of them was just simply like the voice I use in the G file doesn't lend itself to uh, reading it out loud and certainly not reading it out loud in anything close to one or a couple takes. And, you know, and also like there are a lot of parenthetical things in there and there are links to things that don't make sense if you're if you're reading it if, and if you unless you explain the link and if you explain the link then it doesn't work anymore because when you explain a joke you ruin a joke um and so instead i thought uh i would try something different a sort of like weekly roundup kind of thing and i have no idea what form it's going to take and if it if it really doesn't work we won't do it curious of your feedback i guess if it really really doesn't work you'll never hear it because like a tree falling in the woods um an experimental podcast that is never sent out never really existed um sort of like episode 11 but the less about said less said about that the better um so anyway uh, it's been quite a week and the I don't know really where to begin. Uh, the president is going to do another one of his pressers in a second. And um, I got to say, I just, I mean, as I, I said on the Dispatch podcast, our flagship podcast uh, the other day, um, and also in the midweek G-File, um, I really, I think a lot of people are becoming inured to, um, so inured to Trump, they're going to become so numb to his style or they've so rationalized his behavior that um, they were losing the ability to appreciate some, you know, basically the outrageousness of some of it. Um, I, I'm not, I don't, you know, I'm, I try very hard not to sound like some resistance type and find fault in every little thing that he does. I think a lot of his prepared statements have been fine. Again, I think grading on a curve, but been fine. Um, and sometimes early on in those press conferences, he struck, he managed to strike the right tone, but as he gets more comfortable with it, it is so obvious that he is using these things as a substitute for his rallies and the, the petty little attacks, um, on politicians that he doesn't like 
the unfunny jokes about whether, you know, the fake news will ever get to fill the press room again. If you like that stuff, you like that stuff. If you really, really like that stuff, you're probably not listening to this anyway. But I think it's a, um, in a normal time, a president that was as self-indulgent as he is during a national crisis, really two national crises, um, would be considered just beyond the pale. But instead, we get this this weird dysfunctional thing where we've priced in Trump's behavior to such an extent that the people who still find fault with it are the ones who are um, cast, at least by a lot of people on the right, certainly an enormous number of people on my Twitter feed, um, they're cast as sort of, they're the ones who are being irrational. It really reminds me of the old Clinton days when I used to go after Bill Clinton hammer and tongs, particularly during the impeachment stuff. Uh, people would say, um, you know, oh, you're just irrational Clinton hater. And it's a way, it's a defense mechanism to basically dismiss our inconvenient arguments. Um, you know, today I tweeted this thing about, you know, Dan Henninger wrote a really, what I would argue, bad column for the Wall Street Journal, still sort of holding out hope that Donald Trump will be remembered as a great, petty, great president if he can just put, if he could rise above the pettiness of our time. And um, I pointed, I said on Twitter, I said, look, if, if Trump were able to, you know, um, put pettiness aside, we might have seen some sign of that by now already. But that he is who he is. It's, he's, it's an Aesopian thing. The scorpion needs to sting. President Trump needs to behave like a Twitter troll a lot of the time. And um, the feedback was, you know, predictable. And one person said, you know, if you've got a problem with pettiness, maybe you should, you know, take it up with yourself because, you you know, Trump brings out the pettiness in you. And this kind of thing, and I, and I got dozens of these kinds of things, and this kind of argument just drives me crazy because, first of all, I don't think pointing out the pettiness of the President of the United States, particularly during a crisis, is itself a form of pettiness. But even if it were, even if I am like being petty and pointing out the president's foibles, there's still the inconvenient fact that I am not the president of the United States. And we're supposed to hold presidents to a slightly higher standard than, you know, critics, pundits, columnists, whatever label you want to put on me. Um, and most presidents throughout my life, all presidents throughout my life, even Bill Clinton, um, managed, managed to at least seem like they were rising above um, their critics and seemed to have this notion that they were the presidents of the whole people, not just his fan, not just their fans. And Trump seems just utterly incapable of behaving like that kind of person for a sustained period of time. He can read a few paragraphs from a piece of paper or a teleprompter, but then he's always got to ad lib some something gratuitous, something petty, uh, something partisan, something self-aggrandizing to the point where um, you can just, you know, I mean, just put yourself in the shoes of someone who who doesn't like the president of the United States, doesn't hate him, but, you know, has given him the benefit of the doubt for a very long time and has a family member who is suffering from the coronavirus or has seen their life's work in a business gone up in flames and watch him just uh, indulge in these uh, bits of, you know, hucksterism and salesmanship or self-aggrandizing. Um, and if you can't put yourself in their shoes long enough to understand why this is inappropriate, 
then you know uh, it's it it's not that the people were pointing it out are some suffering from Trump derangement syndrome, though certainly some people are. It's that you're probably suffering from pro-Trump derangement syndrome, where any criticism of the president is is automatically considered to be irrational or petty um, or unfair. And if that's your immediate impulse, uh, you know, look to yourself because uh, it's a it's 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 a disturbing thing. Anyway, I don't want to dwell on Trump here. Um, we have, but it does remind me, uh, you know, on the first podcast of the week with Kevin Williamson, who I'm a huge fan of. Uh, he, I think he's he's legitimately probably one of the best writers of our generation, and um, he's one of the very few writers out there who routinely elicits from me writerly envy. Um, there are lots of smart people who elicit intellectual envy from me. I'm surrounded by them at AEI. Um, I'm, you know, constantly resentful that, you know, Ramesh Panuru um, migrated here from the planet Vulcan. And, and you know, same thing with Yuval Levin. And a bunch of people are, are much... It's common for me to run into people who are smarter than me. Um, but uh, there are a few writers I can think of who, when I read them, I'm like, damn, I wish I had written that. Or not just that I had written that, but I had written it that way. Um, and so it was fun to finally have him on. He's a good friend. And he made this point about how the presidency is becoming a form of idolatry. And for people like Kevin and me, who wrote a lot about this sort of thing um, during President Obama, um, it's easy, and who are still critical of Trump, it's easy to see the continuity in it. You know, Ramesh made this point years ago during the Bush administration that the president was becoming our foremost symbol in the culture war. Uh, we invest in the presidency significance beyond which can be found in the Constitution. And I think it's in part, it's, it's you know, related to my thing about nationalism. Um, since he is this, he's one of the few living symbols of the entire country, um, which side they come down on or which side they hint to come down on, at least prior to the last few presidents, um, in the culture wars takes on massive significance. It arouses irrational loyalty on one side and irrational hatred on the other side. Um, and I think it's fundamentally at odds with democracy. I'm, I'm increasingly um, fond of the distinction that they have in the UK where the queen is the head of state, but not head of government, or the monarch is the head of state, but not the head of government. And when you have a different head of state, the which is really only possible, I mean, I, I'd have to go look to see if they have heads of state in presidential systems. I don't think they do. Um, but it's possible in parliamentary systems. And in a parliamentary system, the prime minister, which just means the first minister, um, uh, who serves at the pleasure of the monarch to one extent or another, um, that person is expected to be a partisan. In the parliamentary system, you essentially vote for parties, not for people, um, when you get right down to it. And so the head of state is sort of above politics. They very rarely, at least in the, the British model, they very rarely intrude into um, the partisan squabbles of the time because they have to maintain legitimacy 
as the representative of not just all of the people, but of the historic nation. And we don't have anything like that. And I understand why we got rid of monarchy. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think that was the right move by the founding fathers for obvious reasons. But nonetheless, um, it's you run into this problem where um, it's sort of, you know, you got your chocolate into my peanut butter. No, you got your peanut butter on my chocolate. When you have the head of the state, when you have the head of state and the head of government in the same person, it's it's it becomes so much more difficult to distinguish um, what is proper governing and what is simply partisanship. And I'm not going to do my riff about weak parties, but I think that's one of the reasons why it's gotten worse. And so like idolatry, when kept within healthy guardrails in terms of a monarchy, a democratic monarchy, um, uh, is, is fine. You could have hardcore lefty, um, you know, uh, socialist types in the UK are still love the queen and you have uh, crazy right-wing Tory types who still love the queen because the queen is a symbol of something outside of politics. Um, the presidency becomes, it becomes idolatry in our system because this is something I've been talking about for a long time. We are starting to use politics or partisan affiliation as a substitute for religion. And when you use when, when, when partisanship starts to map through society the way religion once did, um, the, the, the head of state <clears throat> takes on a completely different uh, frequency in a lot of people's minds, and it gets us into the problems that we have. Trump didn't create all of these problems. I think he made a lot of them worse, but we had this problem with you know Barack Obama um, we had it to some extent with George W. Bush and Bill Clinton, too. It's been a long time coming as sort of the the traditional guardrails of various institutions erode. You get to this place where everything becomes political and politics becomes religious and therefore um, fights over our symbols take on meaning that the founding fathers never intended and that are not healthy for a democracy. Um Anyway, I thought it was a good point and, and worth mulling on. Um, there's also, and so then the second podcast we did this week was with um, uh, Shoshana Weissman, who um, I'm really, really fond of. She is a, <laughs> I don't want to make this sound pejorative. She's a real special person. I don't mean that like, oh, great personality kind of thing. I just mean like, she's different. Uh, you know, she's an observant Jew who's kind of profane and uh, completely geeks out on really geeky stuff, which I just think is kind of awesome. And um, and she's remarkably self-assured, um, given all the stuff that she goes to goes through. And um, but, you know, one of the things that we, uh, you know, we were talking about was this stuff about. Uh, occupational licensing. And I, I I find the subject weirdly more fascinating than a healthy person kind of should. Not in terms of the economic stuff, although I think all of that is interesting. What I, you know, I, as I brought up on the podcast, I, I think that one of the things that is, you know, one of the things that we don't appreciate about America is how truly different it is 
in ways that we don't, you know, we, we basically just sort of take for granted. Uh, Charlie Cook and I talk a lot about how the, maybe the best thing that the Founding Fathers ever did was get rid of titles of nobility. For almost all of recorded history prior to about 300 years ago, um, identity politics was everywhere. Um, we called it aristocracy. And all aristocracy meant was that if you were born with the right blood, with the right heritage, it was just taken for granted that you were a better person than the people who weren't. And merit um, counted for very little. And that started to change only fairly recently. You know, it starts, starts to change in, in England and Holland with the rise of middle classes. Um, but even so, and I talk about this a lot in my book, Suicide of the West, even so, it wasn't... Um, even in, even as they as democracy and and liberal classical liberalism started to get a foothold in England, they were still soaked with notions of class and aristocracy and privilege, in ways that America just sort of threw off. Uh, you know, let's not get bogged down on the slavery part of it, which is an important part, but that's not what we need to talk about right now. And so they, um, you know, when um, in America, which was basically peopled by um, sort of middle-class entrepreneurs who came here, uh, they threw off a lot of that stuff. And so, you know, one of the things I talk about a bit in the book um, was the ability to incorporate. Um, the ability to incorporate, which is essentially just a license to do business, was um, for centuries in England and Europe, or longer, um, basically one of the gifts of the crown. You basically gave someone the right, a license from the crown to open a business, to conduct business. And um, even as that got loosened up, there was still an enormous amount of bureaucracy that came with it. And um, it was still very much a sort of who do you know kind of thing to be able to go into business because the way class functioned. And in America, basically, it was just, uh, you know, Daniel Borston writes about this in, uh, in his trilogy about America. I can't remember which edition, which volume it is. But, you know, in, in America, we just basically had a thing where you said, you know, you f file a piece of paper, you, you pay a small fee, and you can start a business. And that was this heroic and bizarre new thing in the world. And so we had this just riot of business formation in the United States where anybody with a good idea and a little organizational know-how could get started. And, you know, there's another thing that is sort of forgotten about in America is that, you know, because, you know, there's this famous question that uh, German sociologist Werner Sombart asks, why is there no socialism in America? And the answer was, uh, for Sombart and for a lot of sort of the classic political historians, that we had uh, no tradition of feudalism here, no tradition of serfdom, no tradition of classes in the aristocratic sense. And, um, and so therefore, sort of the peasant class, you know, socialism, people get this confused a lot. I've written a lot about this. Socialism is often seen by intellectuals as purely this sort of economic theory about the distribution of resources and control of the means of production. But in context, socialism was much more about smashing the symbols of aristocracy, the, whether it was money aristocracy or, or hereditary aristocracy. 
it was about it was about smashing the um the barriers to entry for people to live a good life and um and so it was suffused with class consciousness that um, never really had any major foothold here in the United States. I mean, you can talk about AOC and Bernie Sanders all you like. Um, they're kind of, you know, pale imitations of what the, the sort of the class warfare types of Europe were like, um, particularly in the 18th and 19th and early 20th century. And so um, there's, I have this passage in the book where there's a great part about where, um, which again, a lot of it I think came from Borston, when Europeans would visit the United States in the 1800s, they were horrified that you couldn't tell what someone did for a living simply by looking at them. It used to be that people had, um, you know, occupational uniforms. If you were a dairy farmer, you dressed one way. If you were a baker, you dressed another way. These were these um, social cues that were written throughout society. And in America, you didn't see anything like that. You had people who were rich who dressed like they were poor. You had people who were poor who dressed like they were rich. Um, you had to ask a lot of questions with follow-up questions to find out what someone did for a living. You couldn't necessarily tell from their accent or the clothes that they wore. And this is a deeply democratic and egalitarian ethos that capitalism and democracy don't get any credit for. Um, you can have strong sense of egalitarianism in um, a very capitalist society, it's just that you, um, you, you know, the idea is that you take people as you find them and you don't judge them by who their parents were or their great, great, great parents were. You judge them by what they do with their lives and how they conduct themselves. And that's one of the cultural attributes of liberal democratic capitalism that I think we kind of lost and or are losing. And, um, and so that's kind of like where I come from on a lot of this occupational licensing stuff is it's this way of through the back door reestablishing um, the old systems of class and privilege um, maintained by the state. Because remember, these all these things have to have the imprimatur of, of government behind them. And um, it's why I'm against, uh, you know, the licensing of journalists. Um, which has always been a you know a, a hobby horse of like the Columbia Journalism School types who think that what they do is so special that they should have special protections when in reality the Constitution doesn't create I mean it has this stuff about maintaining a free press but it doesn't say that you know that you have to have a piece of paper calling yourself a journalist the the First Amendment that protects journalists protects all of us we all have the right to commit journalism Um and maybe we're taking that a little bit too far these days with you know social media, but that's a conversation for another time. Um, so uh, today's G file, which I assume by the time you hear this, if you listen to it, will already be out. Um, I talked a lot about what I am sort of ruminating on a lot these days. As I say in the G file, you know, on Monday I wrote my LA Times column about how when, um, you know, in, how basically crises go in, in, in stages or our responses to them. I talked about this a little bit on the podcast with Kevin Williamson. Um, and at first there was denial. Then there was the confirm your priors phase where everybody thought that this crisis proved 
that what they were calling for before the crisis um, was all the more necessary. And we still see a lot of that, but it's I think it's fading away. Um, I think people's patience for it is going away because um, a lot of that off-the-shelf garbage um, doesn't fit the the situation that we're in. And both liberals and conservatives have had to sort of um, swallow hard and and see the situation for what it is, not what they kind of want it to be. Um, Nancy Pelosi had to strip out a lot of the garbage from uh, the House version of the bill that was basically, um, you know, a, a wish list more than anything else for stuff that they'd had lying around for a long time. They still got some of it. You know, the Kennedy Center got $25 million for reasons that baffle me. But anyway, um, that stuff is sort of going by the wayside. And now we're in the, 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 the meat of dealing with the actual crisis. And anyway, so I wrote about that for the LA Times and I had this line in there where I said, you know, but what would really interest me is what's going to be the new normal. And um, uh, and my editor wrote back and said, uh, really, you know, that's what you think is most interesting. All this other stuff is going on. And, and, and like you're you find you're 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 concentrating on what comes after all of this. And I, I get the point. I tweaked to the column a little bit. Um, but the short answer is, yeah, it's just sort of where my head is at. Um, I will go crazy if I try to, like, be an overnight epidemiologist like some of my friends are. Um, and I don't have the math skills to fact check all of the numbers being thrown around. Though I do think, just since no one's here to interrupt me, um, I do think that some of the stats being thrown around by both critics and um, defenders of the administration and the president himself um, are a bit misleading insofar as, uh, you know, people talk all the time about how we have more tests than we've done more Corona tests than South Korea did. Um, yeah, okay. But, you know, none of those, that's an absolute number and it's not weighted for population. Um, there are a lot of these kinds of things that seem like they're really powerful facts. And then you realize, well, maybe not so much. It's also the fact that we didn't start testing till much later than South Korea did. It would have been really impressive if we, if we started testing more than South Korea did at the same time that South Korea had started. But when you start testing matters a lot, given the, uh, geometric project progression of the, the virus. Anyway, I said I wasn't going to do epidemiology and, I, and I'm not. Um, maybe I will when I dress up with the dogs later. Um, but I've been thinking about like what comes after all of this. And, you know, there's a long history of, and I think fascinating history about how sudden um, or from a historic perspective, sudden changes to the natural environment um, or to the economic environment or the social environment, you know, war, disasters, diseases, whatever, they elicit a crisis response and then some elements of the crisis response um, become part of the new normal forever. Uh, you know, 9-11 permanently ruined <laughs> um, uh, the check-in process and airports. Uh, as I know in the G file, that crawl of sort of uh, breaking news headlines that goes underneath the TV on Fox and MSNBC and CNN, uh, that was implemented as sort of an emergency thing uh, right after 9-11, and it's never gone away. Um, another example I cite is Milton Friedman, 
when he was working in like the War Department or something uh, during World War II, uh, the, he was part of a team that was working desperately to come up with ways to raise more revenue for the war effort. And he wisely and rightly came up with this idea of paycheck withholding, where we would just take the taxes right out of your paycheck before you got them. And um, it was very effective at scooping up revenue. It's also never gone away. And uh, apparently Milton Friedman was always very touchy about that. Because, uh, and I think it's probably why he came up with the that famous quote about there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program, because uh, he had firsthand experience with it. But you have all sorts of things. You know, the civil service in a lot of ways was created in the wake of the Civil War and never went away. Um, you know, not, not, not everything was an emergency measure, but some of these things, but a lot of them are. And I think it's just sort of interesting to think about. And one of the things I did was I wrote about the the Black Death or the bubonic plague in Europe. And it was really fascinating to me, at least, how many things from that period um, profoundly not only changed the world, but um, hung on for a long time after. And um, so anyway, but you can read that out about all that in the G file. One of the things I cut out was this little discussion of um, what some people call the best strategic memo ever written. Um, there was this guy, Lynn Wells, who's a storied government um, uh, worker uh, expert. I'm spacing on the right term for it. Um, who, uh, when the Defense Department was doing its quadrennial defense review under Rumsfeld, he sent Rumsfeld this memo. And... Um, it's this amazing um, piece about how change works. And he, I'll read it to you, or at least I'll read some of it. He begins the thing by saying, if you'd been a security policymaker in the world's greatest power in 1900, you, you would have been a Brit looking warily at your age-old enemy, France. By 1910, you would be allied with France and your enemy would be Germany. By 1920... World War I would have been fought and won, and you'd be engaged in a naval arms race with your erstwhile allies, the U.S. and Japan. By 1930, naval, naval arms limitation treaties were in effect, the Great Depression was underway, and the defense planning standards said no war for 10 years. Nine years later, World War II began. Then he goes, I'll keep going because I think it's interesting, and if I've lost you already, so, but, so what? By 1950... Britain no longer was the world's greatest power, the atomic age had dawned, and a police action was underway in Korea. Ten years later, the political focus was on the missile gap. The strategic paradigm was shifting from massive retaliation to flexible response, and a few people and few people had heard of Vietnam. By 1970, the peak of our involvement in Vietnam had come and gone. We were beginning detente with the Soviets, and we were anointing the Shah as our protege in the Gulf region. By 1980, the Soviets were in Afghanistan, Iran was in the throes of revolution, there was talk of our hollow forces and a window of vulnerability, and the U.S. was the greatest creditor nation the world had ever seen. By 1990, the Soviet Union was within a year of dissolution, American forces in the, in the desert were on the verge of showing they were anything but hollow, the U.S. had become the greatest debtor nation the world had ever known, and almost no one had heard of the Internet. Ten years later, 
Warsaw was the capital of a NATO nation, asymmetric threats transcended geography, and the parallel revolutions of information, biotechnology, robotics, nanotechnology, and high-density energy sources foreshadowed changes almost beyond forecasting. And then he ends the memo, all of which is to say, I'm not sure what 2010 will look like, but I am sure that it will be very little like we expect, so we should plan accordingly. Now, you just think about it. I mean, I just think that's great. And if you think about it, if you had, I mean, I know we had a great piece uh, at the dispatch about how various intelligence agencies had basically predicted the pandemic. But if you had been in a meeting with Mike Pompeo or Donald Trump or any of the leaders of Europe, forget 10 years ago, 10 weeks ago, and said the single most galvanizing and defining problem of um, maybe the next 25 years, who knows, I mean, I'm not trying to be gloomy, is this pandemic and the economic catastrophe that has come with it, you've been kind of laughed out of the room. Um, I mean, you've been laughed out of the room if you said that three and a half weeks ago. Um, but here we are. And so, you know, it, it's kind of a contradictory point to, point to where I began insofar as, you know, I'm talking about the lag time of change and all of these kinds of things and how... Um, um, and now all of a sudden, you know, when you th when you step back and you look at it, how f you realize how fast the pace of change is. But um, I keep just trying to think about, you know, what the new normal is going to look like. And um, I think, you know, I'm going to be spending probably the rest of my life, at least that's how I feel right now, the rest of my, at least my political, my, at least the rest of my professional career, arguing with people about, things that were done during this crisis not being um, relevant to how we should organize society after the crisis. Um, you know, uh, I did the, my second column of the week, I did about this really dumb, long question from Ari Melber that I caught on MSNBC where, and you find this stuff all over the place. It was just a good sort of symbolic example of it. Um, where Melber makes this point, he says, you know, for years we've been told that we can't afford to do all of these things. We can't afford, I don't know, socialized medicine, yada, yada, yada. And then all of a sudden, because of this crisis, we can afford trillions of dollars to fight it. Um, doesn't that open up the possibility that, you know, we can do all sorts more things? And I find the whole thing just absolutely outrageous. Uh, you know, first of all, we really can't afford this in any strict measure of things. We're borrowing almost all of it um, from our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids, and from China to pay for all of this. Um, one of the things, you know, one of my priors that I think is right is that, you know, those of us who said we should live within our means when the times were good, I mean, maybe, put, maybe even put away a little money for a rainy day, have been proven right. It would be much easier and less stressful for the United States government to attack this virus and attack this, you know, coming economic calamity if we had been running surplus surpluses for the last, you know, few years or for the last 20 years, but we haven't been. And so we're just adding unimaginable amounts of debt to an already unimaginably high level of national debt in the first place. And um, I don't remember how I got on this, but. Oh, yeah. So my point is, is that I think that in the in the months and years ahead, 
we're going to hear lots of people basically making this argument. It's very similar to um, the stuff I harp on all the time about how during World War One, the progressives so loved Woodrow Wilson's war socialism and the command and control nature of the presidency during that time that they were just furious. I mean, they were they were moping like a big dog whose food bowl had been moved over the fact that once the war was over, we got rid of the war socialism and had a return to normalcy. It deeply offended them. And they spent, you know, people like George Soule and, 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 and John Dewey and these others, they would make this, their, their rallying cry was, we planned in war, the argument being that we can plan in peace. And uh, that argument didn't take because the memory of a free, you know, capitalist society was still fresh enough in people's minds and the deprivations they went through during World War I were such that they didn't think it was a great time. You know, uh, intellectuals and, and new class types who like controlling everything, they thought it was awesome that they got to, you know, basically uh, rationally plan and socially engineer the society and tell people what they could eat and read, um, where they could go. They thought that stuff was great, but the people themselves didn't like it. And so when the war was over, they said enough of all of this. But the intellectuals held on to it. And they bided their time. And then when the, the stock market crashed in 29 and then um, and really then when FDR came in, they basically just uh, got the band back together, got the playbook from World War One. Uh, FDR was totally upfront about this. Um, he said that we're going to take all of the methods and techniques that we use to fight World War One, and we're going to use them to fight the Great Depression. Never mind that they weren't well suited for the Great Depression. And and, and I would argue, as, as a few other people do, that the, the New Deal, and in fact, prolonged the Great Depression. It was a bad depression, but it was a Great Depression because of the New Deal. And and then you look at the New Deal. I mean, the New Deal was, you know, started with a sense of emergency to combat the Great Depression. It didn't end the Great Depression. World War II did, and then the prosperity that came after did. Um, but how much of the New Deal was dismantled afterward? The New Deal became part of the new normal and is still with us. And um, so I can see, you know, for the next, you know, for the rest of my life, arguing with people that direct cash payments to everybody or guaranteed health care for everybody um, makes sense during a global pandemic, but it doesn't make sense once you've got that under control. But you know that that's where we're going to go, and that's what the argument is going to be like. And, um, you know, the, the happy warrior in me, which you're not hearing much of, kind of looks forward to those arguments, but I'm also sort of deeply depressed by them too. Um you know, so, you know, like, I mean, as, as I've talked about for two years on this podcast, you know, the climate bef right before um, this whole thing hit us um, was not great for liberal democratic capitalism. You have all of these new nationalists and these post-liberal, traditional, Catholic whatevers. And, um, you know, you have, you know, people like Tucker Carlson praising Elizabeth Warren's economic plan. Um you have all the Bananistas, you have, and then you have all the resurgent or you know um, socialists on the left, from AOC and Bernie Sanders on over. Um, there, there, there were dismayingly few of us defending and fighting for the ideas of liberal democratic capitalism when the economy was going great. Um, you know when when and I mean I, Trump exaggerates a lot of those stats. 
but he's he's right on the basics, which is you know wages were going up for poor people, wages were going up for minorities, the economy was looking good, and people nonetheless were paying lip service to this idea that we needed to move past you know the so-called market fundamentalism um, that they saw all around us but couldn't cite examples of, and uh, and now we've got this thing that we're going to go through. And it's not entirely clear to me that, like, um, you know, we're going to have more champions of, you know, having our heads and our hearts wired together for full tilt boogie for freedom and justice after this thing. And I'm sure there are going to be examples of changes that we have to, you know, we have to swallow. I mean, I, I kind of think we're going to have to have higher taxes at the high end when we get through all of this um, to pay off, to pay for some of this stuff. And we're going to have to you know, we've got a very clear market signal that taking public health and pandemic stuff and epidemic stuff much more seriously makes a lot of sense as a sort of economic, pro as a prophylactic against this kind of disaster. Um, so, I mean, there are going to be things that I'm going to agree with that um, are going to be part of the new normal, but I'm very concerned that uh, we're going to throw out the baby with the bathwater on a lot of this stuff. And it's going to become all the more important for people who were eager to defend liberal democratic capitalism before this, that they understand that liberal democratic capitalism did not create this problem. You know, uh, our healthcare system, which is, you know, got its problems and all of that, did not create the problems that we have right now. Um, you know, Italy, China, <laughs> South Korea, France, they all have much closer to, I don't know, I'm not positive about South Korea, but the rest of them have much closer to the kind of healthcare system Democrats are talking about. They were all caught off guard too. And so, you know, it's, it's we're going to be stuck in this period, sort of like after 9-11, where a lot of conservatives got on board for expanding government, um, where it's going to be a, an ill-suited environment for people who want to actually make um, the kinds of arguments that, that I still, you know, profoundly agree in. And I, and I hope that there are at least some listeners out there who agree with me and are going to get geared up for the fight. Anyway, I have no idea if this wasn't just a complete waste of time. It feels incredibly unnatural and pompous and self-serving for me to sit here and opine this way. Um, but if people have constructive criticisms um, including saying just don't ever do that again. That's fine. Please let me know. Um, but I get people who ask me to do this, you know, to bring back this idea of the audio G file all the time. And um, I figured since I have this time on my hands, I would give it a shot. I still have a bunch of things I want to rant about from the week, but I didn't write them down. I got to get better about that kind of thing. Um, but to be frankly, to be perfectly honest, the list of things I got to get better at is very, very, very long. Um, anyway, thank you all so much for listening, if you are listening. And um, maybe or maybe not, I'll see you next time on one of these things. Thank you.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.